Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 23rd, 2015. This is episode 1680 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it's a Monday, so it's got a listener feedback show for you, kicking off a relatively short week as we head into the holiday season. And I figure right up front I'll tell you what you can expect uh, coming for the rest of this week. Tomorrow we'll have a show with Chef Keith Snow on preparing Thanksgiving dinner and all the different things we, you can think about to be a little bit creative and to do a perfect turkey and all that other stuff because it's freaking Thanksgiving week, and it's just a good topic. I'll tell you today... That's actually going to be a rerun of one of the shows Chef Keith previously did. I started thinking about it and went, you know what? We really kind of covered the bases with that, and the best show is probably from 2012. So I'm going to run the 2012 show tomorrow with new front end and a little bit of commentary on the front end for you. And then Wednesday will be the Thanksgiving Day special. The Thanksgiving Day special is the survivalist view of Thanksgiving. This show I originally did in 2008, the first year the show was uh, was done. And it's been done every year ever since, pretty much the same show over and over. Kind of like, you know, watching uh, uh, Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown or, you know, Thanksgiving Charlie Brown. Like, that's our thing that we have here at the TSP community. We do it every year. There's actually transcripts of that one and the Christmas special available in text. I'll make sure that you can get to those in tomorrow's show notes as, or uh, Wednesday's show notes as well. And I'd like to maybe uh, throw it out today that you think about possibly on Thanksgiving – Getting the uh, transcript and having your family read different parts of it and, and learn about the first Thanksgiving, or go ahead and listen to the Thanksgiving special from the Survival Podcast. Even your non-survivally family members, I think, will uh, will like that episode because it truly tells the real history of Thanksgiving and how it became part of America's culture. That's what's coming up this week. And Thursday's Thanksgiving, I'm going to fill up with turkey and go into a turkey coma drink some really good wine, and watch football, and not do much of anything else. And Friday I'm going to be out in my yard planting. My, my wife's actually running a garage sale on Friday. I'm going to be planting trees. If, uh, if anybody wants to maybe come by Black Friday instead of shop plant trees with me, just send me an email, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, and put TSPC tree planting in the subject line. Uh, we won't be doing any kind of lunch or anything like that, though. There'll be a lot of leftovers laying around. If did throwing it out there. I got my 800 locust trees in, 300 going to Nick Ferguson, 500 got to go in the ground here, and I'm just going to throw a bunch in the ground on Friday because my wife's not going to be here. So anybody wants to come uh, plant trees Friday, you can do that, um, but don't feel obligated or anything. With that, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time, and we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that, and they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard line skill set. 
Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what, just just stick with us. And when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later, it was February of the next year, that we launched the MSB. And we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original survival podcast sponsor safe castle rule remember they also do a discount membership program it's 49 dollars, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life but they are such awesome sponsors they give that away to all members of my support brigade effectively paying for your first year of the msb right there check them out today again safecastle.com All right, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have Slavery Soars in Virginia, and I have Pope Pablo's Revolt and the Promise of Paradise. I'm going to read Slavery Soars in Virginia. The current number of slaves in Virginia is approximately 3,000. In the next 20 years, that number will grow to 16,000, and by the time the 1790s U.S. Census is taken, 300,000 slaves will be living in Virginia. That will be more than 40% of all the slaves in the United States. Many people realize that, that by right around the year 1800, 40% of all slaves in the entire country were in one state, Virginia. Uh, my take by Alex Shrugged, the question is, why did the growth of the slave population take a sudden jump in 1680? The previous governor of Virginia had been pushing toward a more diversified economy instead of the labor-intensive but extremely profitable tobacco crops. When the governor fell from power, tobacco was locked in as a cash crop for Virginia. That locked in slavery. There was, all, there was also a recent labor shortage in England, which drove up labor costs, making slavery more economically viable. 
And there was a problem with the, for the Virginia farmer with a free mobile workforce. The economist Adam Smith noted there was so much land available in North America, a mobile workforce could move to their own plot of land and work it themselves whenever they didn't like how the existing farmers were treating them. In the modern day, employers must think of ways to keep skilled workers in an area as a available resource rather than having them move away. My cousin is an unemployed auto worker. When there is work, the money is very good. When he is not working, he is miserable, but he won't risk moving because the government and local employers make it comfortable enough for him to remain available. This is the serfdom of modern day, but none of that fully explains why Virginia farmers in the late 1780s preferred African black slaves over the one million white slaves available worldwide at the time. The reason was white people dropped like flies exposed to the diseases of the Americas and Africa. Only Africans stood a chance of surviving in the fields. It was the exposure to the diseases of West Africa that provided them better protection in the South than their white slave counterparts. The over a million, million white slaves available worldwide. Think about that. That's not what history teaches. Uh, what history teaches us is it was due to racism. I, I think to farmers of this time, slaves were slaves. Slaves were slaves, but you know, how do I make a decision as to what breed of animal to use on my farm? I want the animal that's fit to the farm, right? I want the animal that's adapted to the climate. If it's an animal that can tolerate a lot of heat but not cold, I would use that in the south. If it can tolerate a lot of cold but not heat, I'd use that animal in the north. I know that sounds demeaning to human beings, but it's how slaves were viewed, not how I view them. And that's how we're viewed today. Whoever works out best for the given situation is what the modern slave owners use. And that's what our modern system is. It's a modern system of slavery where slaves care for themselves. And I know it's hard to believe that sometimes. I know it's hard to decouple from the matrix enough to understand that. But this whole thing with the, you know, the, the, the Alex's uh, brother or cousin, whoever he said was, is an auto worker, that he won't leave and go do something else because they make it comfortable enough for him to stay there even though he's miserable. What other definition of slavery are you looking for? And I think that the biggest takeaway that I have from here is something that I've tried to convey to a lot of people. And for some reason, they just don't want to understand that if you want to control people, then use economics. Economics is the most uh, successful and reliable way to control human beings that we've ever discovered, more so than the actual physical chains of slavery, more so than various forms of government, that economics is the means by which you can control a population. And if you look at the growth of slavery in Virginia, it was all 100% economically driven. There was money in tobacco. These guys didn't fall over and die. Because of the economics of labor, it was viable to provide them a shack and food and feed them and, and basically keep them like a piece of property rather than an employee or a contractor. And because there was so much surplus of land available, you needed a workforce that just couldn't pack up and leave. Right? So that's another function of economics, that there's a huge piece on the supply side there. The land supply side was massive. And we had not yet colonized it to the point where we could say, all of this land is owned by so-and-so, because you could just go out there and start farming, and there wasn't really enough resources to do anything about it. So this entire growth in slavery from a few thousand to 300,000 in a couple hundred years was driven by economics. And slavery began to fall apart and wane when the economic quotient changed. So the people in power, while they held on to slavery until the 1860s in this country, 
really knew that, that that writing was on the wall. Slavery was on the way out anyway. And they retooled and redeveloped systems of control based on current economics. And we had the Industrial Revolution. And we had children working like slaves in automated facilities. And then we had the whole labor reform era. And what happened next? We had, well, the children have to go to school now so they can be programmed so that they'll never leave that factory. Think about that. Think about that, really. Instead of getting the children out of the factory, you know, because it was the right thing to do, what really happened is we put them into a system of programming that made sure the majority of children who re-entered the factory, no matter its current form, might be an office space today, but they would enter it programmed to a point that they would never leave. Rather than experience it as children, profit on it, and figure out how not to go back there. I'm not saying that's what was happening. I'm just saying that's a different way to look at this. It's a different way to look at this. And it is what happened. The, the, the result, anyway. When we took the children out of the workforce, and again, I'm not saying that in itself was bad, but what do you do with them when you take them out of the workforce? We programmed them to go into the workforce permanently. That's what we did. And as you'll hear with many of the things that we're talking about, what we'll be talking about today's show, a lot of the things that the society has been running on its economic model for the last 150 to 200 years is about to come to a crashing, screeching halt. And you're going to see it in your lifetime. Unless a gravel truck takes you out in the next couple weeks or something, you're living in it right now. The entire paradigm of economics and therefore control is radically shifting in the modern age, right now, today. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, um, let's get into the main topic of today's show. All right, so let's jump into your feedback for me today. Though we are going to talk a lot about economics and shifts today, I'm going to start out with a more general preparedness question. This is one of those um, uh, two spouses arguing where I'm asked to take a side. And a lot of times I, I don't like to do that because a lot of times it's not really clear who's right. In this particular instance, though, the woman's right. Sorry, dude. I'm sorry, dude. This is from Tori. Uh, actually, I'm not sorry because my job is to help you guys be prepared. And listen to your wife, man. She's got it down. She says, hi, Jack. How many bug out bags do we need in our vehicles and on our purse at any given time? Background, my husband and I live in Spokane, Washington. I was talking to him about the basic bug out bag from episode 1671. We are at a disagreement. I think we need a basic bag for each of our persons. He and I must work in different locations, and either one of us might be unable to get to the kids at child care. I also think our two vehicles and RV should have enough water in each. I'm fine with taking a backpack with me with a couple small bottles of water and canned food in case I need to hoof it another six miles to child care. He and I carpool to work so I won't have a means of transportation if I need to leave work and he can't get to me. Plus, I'd rather he got to the kids first. I can walk. I'm no stranger to 10K and six miles is less than that. The kids will be fine at their child care by law. They're required to have enough food for three days. I've seen their food storage. It's a lot more than three days. My husband thinks my ideas are overkill. What do you say? Like I said right from the beginning, Tori's right. Dude, Jesse, you're wrong. You're wrong on every freaking level you could be wrong. Okay, a bug out bag is designed to provide individuals enough material and resources so that they can survive three days in relative comfort without major additional things of support. Because the number one limitation that exists in such situations is spatial. No matter how much room there is, 
One person cannot in one bag carry enough material for four people, two adults and two children. It's not possible. It cannot be done. It shall not be done. It will not be done. And it will never, ever, ever, ever infinity ever happen unless you happen to be a giant and you can carry a bag as big as, I don't know, like a small car. Which, if you were, you'd need so much that that would only be enough for you. See the scales. The size of the individual. Not only is your wife totally, 100% absolutely correct that you need a bug out bag for each of you, she left out something probably because you were being resistant to the first thing. You need one for, dun dun dun, each of your children. Yes. Now, do they need to have all the equipment and all the gear that we, that we have for ourselves? Absolutely not. They wouldn't know what to do with half of it. Couldn't carry it if you, if you, if you built it for them. But, the basic change of clothes for each? Yes. Basic toiletries for each? Yes. A little bit of food? Cards, video games, something, a coloring book, some crayons? Something to keep them occupied? Yeah. And anything that you'd like to have that you've kind of run out of space for, it's not real heavy, you can add to theirs, it's not dangerous for them? Yeah, you put that in there. Okay? This is family preparedness. You have a family, not an individual. Okay? And you don't know what's going to happen when. You don't know. You don't know if you're going to have to all of a sudden go out of town for some reason, and that's when the shit hits the fan. You don't know if she's going to have to go out of town for some reason, and that's when the shit hits the fan. You don't know that she's going to be able to walk six miles to get to where they are, or you're going to be able to drive to get to where they are. You don't know. You don't know which one's going to be. I bet you one of them's going to figure out how to get there. But once you do, then what? Then what? This is actually, I can tell you the, the source of this debate. Somebody don't want to spend the money and time and effort to get it done. Because there's, you see, if, here, this is where I'm going to get myself into trouble. All the women are happy with me right now for taking a female side. But in general, with men and women, men are the more logical, more logical of the species. We really are. We're more likely to take emotion and just put it on the shelf and say, listen, this is about, you know, what do we need? How does it get done? Why does it get done? When does it get done? How do we do it? Okay. Uh, until we don't want something. Until we don't want something. And then we start coming up with all kinds of basal emotional resistance to it. Right? Because, well, the logic won't work here. And, and that's what I guarantee you, if you sit down and think about this logically, that you're going to have a single emergency kit for a two-adult and two-child household that does not pass logic. It just doesn't. I, I may have made... Corey's job a little harder because I'm so hard here on her husband. But, dude, this is one guy telling you to another guy, this is not the way to take care of your family. Okay, Each of you as adults needs a kit that would give you the basics of what you need if you had to stand alone and take care of those kids for a couple days on your own with no hope of getting back together and getting the resources the other one has that needs to be there. You need to have it. You need to have it. And what Tori needs to do is go... And build basically two kits, a light and a heavy, a modular type kit, and the additional stuff that you don't want to carry with you in your backpack every single day. That stuff goes to work and it stays there because you're in a one vehicle, two adult situation where you're dropping her off and picking her up from work based on the email that I just read. So that means that there's no reason not to put some extra stuff there. As far as putting extra water in all the vehicles, absolutely. Too cheap not to do it. No logical argument to be made against it. I know that sometimes people think, well, my kids having their own bag is overkill. Really, so in your bag, you have a change of clothes for each of your kids? You have things to keep them occupied in, in your bag? Where's your stuff then? See, it doesn't work. It doesn't logistically work. It doesn't work. 
the, the spatial availability quotient fails. Because again, we should have a couple shirts, a pair of pants, a pair of shorts, change of underwear, change of socks times three. Right? We should have all that. Now that alone, you try to put four people's stuff in one bag, where are you at? Well, kids don't really need all that. Yes, they do. You have no idea if when you get where you're going, your kids are going to be soaking wet. Are these kids still in the stage where they're pooping their pants? <laughs> oh, she's got a diaper bag. Sure. How long does that last? Right. You've got to think about the needs for 72 hours for every member of your family when you go through this exercise. And you need to put together at least the basics to see to that need. Because you don't even know if another family member is going to have to run by your house, pick up some resources for your kids and take care of your kids, and neither of you are going to be able to be there. Well, yes, I do. No, you don't. No, you don't, because that would mean you have a crystal ball that works, and please tell me which stocks to buy on February uh, 15th, in 2016. You don't know. That's why we do this stuff. So the short answer, one kit for every member of the family. Additional materials in every vehicle. If, if you're in this situation where you're ride-sharing to work, the spouse that does not have control of the vehicle should take additional resources that add to the weight and size of the kit, where I don't want to carry it every single day, and put them in a secure location at their, their office facility. Each kid should have a small, much scaled down, but small version of their kit. In that kit should be basic clothing for three days, basic toiletry for three days, things to keep them occupied, fed, and happy. And anything less than that, you're not prepared. There's a lot of things that I'll say, this is very advanced, and you don't have to go this far. But if you want to actually say that you've done this, that's what you got to do. I'm sorry, I can't change it for you. But, Tori, you're 100% right. Dude, sorry, got to call it like I said it. So moving on to the next one, let's jump right into kind of what you're going to see as a recurring theme today, like the evolving technology and, and society. Uh, I'm going to start off with uh, an article in The Guardian, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a very, very long article. Um, I, I think the headlines may be a little bit sensationalist. Artificial intelligence, homo sapiens will be split into a handful of gods and the rest of us. Um, I think that might be a little sensationalistic, but... Here's the, the opening couple paragraphs. If you wanted relief from stories about tire factories and steel plants closing, you could try relaxing with a new 300-page report from Bank of America Merrill Lynch, which looks at the likely effects of the robot revolution. But you might not end up reassured. Though it promises robot careers for an aging population, it also forecasts a huge number of jobs being wiped out, up to 35% of all workers in the U.K. and 47% of those in the U.S., including white-collar jobs, seeing their livelihoods taken away by machines. Again, this article is really long, but it goes through all types of things. Automation of vehicles. They have video of a drone, a, a, a drone, an automated, uh, you know, unmanned vehicle avoiding obstacles traveling at 30 miles an hour. Like one of these old drones, it's actually kind of hard to fly if you've ever flown one. Yeah, but once it's programmed, it's just like cruising in between trees and stuff at 30 miles an hour. Um, it, it talks about how lawyers who used to slog through giant files for the discovery phase of a, uh, phase of a trial can now turn it into a computer, an intelligent assistant that's called Amy, uh, with email and set up meetings uh, autonomously. So it actually will not only do a lot of the discovery just from what's available without um, you know, doing interviews and things like that, where interviews are identified, it will actually take the place of your paralegal and your personal assistant and actually schedule the interviews for you because it knows what to do. And we're just getting started with all of this. And, you know, when they say 47% of all jobs will be eliminated in the United States, 
let's say they're wrong by 50%, a little bit more. Let's say it's only 20%. And let's say that of the percent that are eliminated, 10% will be replaced by new jobs. Not a net 10, but a gross 10, gross 10 of the total. So it's only elimination of 10% of all jobs. We're screwed. We're screwed. I mean, we're, we're a society that, that, that starts freaking out when unemployment goes over 8%. We're happy when it's like 5. And if we, if we go the, our best is really around 5 ever, and it's never sustainable, and add 10 to that, you're at 15%. And that's, that's the officially reported unemployment number. This is a reality. I, I, the, the problem is today that people continue to use the word robot with 1970 visual. A robot is a, is a, is either something that kind of looks like a human, like an android, or at least it's like a vehicle, like, you know, a little, little vacuum cleaner that runs around your house, or a welding arm that puts together cars or something like that. That's what we think of as robots. But the most advanced technology today, even though this, this Guardian article has a picture of like this thing that looks like a human being with lit up eyes, like we always think of, is actually inside our computers. Inside our smartphones. If you think about it today, Your smartphone, your iPhone, your Android, note that they call it Android, just saying, um, these devices do on some levels more than a Star Trek tricorder was supposed able to do. It was kind of the catch-all thing, but I'll release a little bit of my, my inner Trek nerd here. Um, it was mainly used to collect information, to store information, and to interpret information. And this could be anything from scouting an area and seeing is there anybody around here uh, to analyzing an illness and going back and saying, does this illness have any known you know, treatments? Do the symptoms match? Things like that. So there were three primary things that it did. It didn't even communicate. It did, if you think about Star Trek, right? The 60s Star Trek, all the way up to modern Star Trek, right? they have a tricorder and a communicator. And the communicator is this little badge, you know, thing on them. They tap it, beep, 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 right? Now, old Star Trek, they had a flip phone, right? We've done past that in the 90s. I don't know who the hell carries a flip phone today, but if you do, you're wrong, right? <laughs> you can carry any phone you want, but really, you, you stand out if you pull your phone out and flip it open today. You're just saying you do, right? So, so Kirk had a, a flip phone in 1966. But soon thereafter, it became the, the, the communicator was on your, on your body, And then you have this tricorder. Well, now we have these smartphones that basically are the communicator and do way more than the tricorder. Now, there, again, there are certain things your smartphone can't do. You can't point it at an alien species and hit do, and let it scan it and tell you that it has three brains. No, it doesn't do that. But in, in many ways, for what we're able to do today, the smartphone of today makes the tricorder look like what it really is, a 1966, you know, concept that didn't even understand what would be really possible in 2015. So what can your smartphone do that puts people out of work right now? Your smartphone right now has a health feature that actually can monitor your health and do a better job for you if you'll use the technology than, you know, your, your health coach type people that we used to have. But, you know, those guys never made up a significant portion of the, uh, of, 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 you know, the economy anyway. But 
That's just an example of what it can do. And there are even apps that help diagnose illnesses. And there will be apps in the near future that will tell you basically when to and when not to go to a doctor. Like, okay, your symptoms and your vitals that we're able to detect on this phone indicate that all you really need is rest and, and fluids or you should make an appointment with your doctor. In fact, they'll make your appointment with your doctor for you inside this screwed up healthcare system that we have, by the way. How, how many jobs does that eliminate? What about, I mean, how many of you really think, I can't wait till six o'clock to find out about the weather today? You know, how many of those people on these local, uh, you know, news stations would even have a job if they weren't part of the control apparatus already? You know, in other words, do you think that your local news affiliate's actually profitable? They're not. They're not. They're being held up by the giant underlying network, the ABCs, NBCs, Foxes of the world's. There's no need for all of this, this facade of local news anymore. There's maybe 5% of your news coverage is covered actually at the local level now. You're just jammed full of all this global and national news that all comes out of Reuters. And it's controlled from the top down. The whole thing's a facade. It only exists. right? So your local news weather person, they don't really know what they're doing. They're getting all their information from somewhere else. This could all be centralized by now. It's like, it's one of the exceptions. But I mean, do you, do you really need to tune into the news or do you just pull up your weather app? Right? And your weather app with the, with the radar indicator and the new weather channel app where they have people actually saying it's raining here, it's snowing here, it's windy here actually now texts you and says, Hey, rain will begin in about five minutes. The rain will be light going on and off for the next hour. So by, by group think, The weather information off your smartphone is absolutely positively more accurate. And, and that's just your phone. Okay, and I, I use the phone to explain it in a way that, like, it's tangible to you because you have one. It's in your hands. You can look at it. You can feel it. You can start to think about, it, like, uh, how many, how much call is there to make calculators today? Hey, by the way, remember when your math teacher in fifth grade told you you won't always have a calculator available? Yeah, about that. Um, they're on my computer. They're on my smartphone. I don't think I've bought a calculator in a very long time, but yet I always have access to a calculator. You know, it's, it's ironic that well, Apple's tried to bring out the iWatch, right, or whatever the hell they call it. Apple single-handedly destroys the watch in America. Watches are more now a, a fashion symbol. I know some of you, you guys that are like nostalgic, say, I need my watch. No, you don't. If you carry a phone, you have no need of a watch. Your, your phone does more from, from time management than a watch ever could. It absolutely does. We, we have the ability to now talk to each other and see each other. Like, like there's Buck Rogers stuff not that long ago. To date myself again with Buck Rogers. Right? Tweaky, the, the little robot, right? See, but the, the, these are, these are the, 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 the consumer-facing robots that we don't even think of as robots. Your phone is, is dozens of little bots. But... What we have now are bots that can literally go out and crawl and gather information and do the work of hundreds of people that we used to call analysts. Minimizing the number of analysts we need for everything from controlling our country as, as government totalitarianism for a company like Exxon to figure out what its next marketing campaign is. Technology does that shit better. We, and, and there are people that are going to be necessary to do these programming, but it's becoming less and less specialized and less and less numbers necessary to do it as machines become more and more capable of replicating themselves, taking on almost truly a lifelike tactic or, or a, a component to them.
But I'll have a link in today's show notes. And just for now, think about the fact that your smartphone really is, in many ways today, more advanced than the Star uh, Star Trek tricorder of the original series from the 1960s. Just, just think about that. Hold on to that thought as we go through some other things today. Let me just throw two final thoughts out before we move on from this one. And that is, first of all, that there are a lot of people, when you bring this up, say that's all been said before. This article is worth reading. It actually does an awful lot to cover that and how this time is different. And I think it makes a good logical case for it. And, and the last part is I was trying to make this, and now it becomes clear to me how I need to put this. We keep focusing on the word robots. Jaws will be replaced by robots. And especially for those of you who are my age and older that have heard this term robot and were promised that by now we'd have these autonomous beings that would walk around our home and like wait on us like butlers or whatever. Didn't happen. We need to replace the word robot with just technology. These jobs are being, one way or another, eliminated through the advancement of technology, from vehicles that drive themselves to apps that can diagnose our health better than a doctor because it actually pays attention to us, where doctors today walk into uh, waiting rooms backwards. I, I was just to a doctor the first time in many years, and the guy literally walked in backwards and walked out forwards, never really looked at me. Just typical shit. I mean, and actually, I believe that while technology can never replace true medical practitioners, that doctors have been put into a position today where they're not able to function that way by and large anymore. And the system is moving them further and further from that, where technology will become preferable, even if it wouldn't otherwise be. Moving on. With all this in mind, here's an interesting question. This comes from Dean. He says, I'm reading 21 Trends for the 21st Century. As this book discusses the various changes coming to our society through aging, immigration, demographics, I start to wonder what will be the glue that holds America together. We will have different languages, ethnicities, and origins. Our kids are taught in universities that are populated by a high percentage of foreign students and taught by professors that do not necessarily love the Constitution. In the light of so many factors that are eroding our common unity, what do you th see as any substitute for common heritage, language, or religion that will hold America together in years to come? Thanks, Dean. Um, well, I, I smell truth and irrational fear in the same place here. Okay, So let's start out with kind of the end. What will hold people together other than common heritage, language, or religion? Okay, number one, I don't think you can hold a country together in a rational state with religion when your country is founded on the premise that all people have a right to worship their version of God in their way. Okay, so I don't think religion was ever designed to be intended to be the unifying force in America, and if we look at some of the things religion has been twisted by politicians to mean when it doesn't, it may have done more harm than good, whether it's good in intrinsically to itself or not. So we can just take religion and say, that's not what this country is supposed to be all about anyway, other than the freedom of religion that's inherent to a constitutional republic like America is supposed to be. So this, this irrational fear of somebody because they're Muslim is just that. It's an irrational fear. Okay, But Jack, radical Islam. Yes, yes, yes. And unlike our president and our leaders, I'm not afraid of the word radical Islam. I'm not afraid to say it, but I could, I, I'll say this. We should no more judge the average Muslim for radical Islam than we should judge the average Christmas, uh, Christian for people like the Westboro Baptist Church. 
That's, that's the extreme example of it. So religion, I don't think, is the binding component to America. This is a republic, not a theocracy. And I make no apologies for that statement because the founders back up that statement with what they did with the foundational documents of our country. Okay? Number one. Number two, common language. I think common language will continue to be a major component in America. Because to be successful in a nation like America, you have to be able to communicate with people. And I don't care how many people come here from how many different places, the vast majority of people in this country speak English. In fact, the more languages that are brought to this country, the more important English becomes as a uniter. Because if you have tons of people here that speak Spanish and English, it's very easy for a population to bifurcate into Spanish-speaking and English-speaking. But if you have people coming here that speak different forms of Aramaic, different forms of Asian languages such as Chinese and Japanese, things like French and German and Portuguese and all these other different languages, then there needs to be a common unifying language where... You know, you came here from a Spanish-speaking country. My family came here from a country that spoke Ukrainian back before the Ukraine had Russian forced on it. Even though the Ukraine language and the Russian language are very similar, they are two distinctive languages. So my family came here speaking Ukrainian on one side. They came here speaking German and Italian on another side. And yet they all learned English, not because they were just forced to, but because it was necessary. And I believe that will continue to be one of the things, that the English language, though it'll evolve and change and new words will come into it, like it always has. Because if you went back to 1600 England and tried to have a conversation with somebody in supposed English, neither of you would know what the hell the other one's talking about. You really would. You'd have as much trouble as talking to a Frenchman today when he doesn't speak English and you don't speak French. At least almost as much. So language, I think, will stay there. Heritage. This country's heritage is not America heritage. It is a heritage of immigration. Now, I know some of you think I've gone off the liberal deep end and I'm going to be cozying up to Hillary Clinton or something by saying that. But listen, we can't walk away from truth just because the truth is used by liars. The, the people running for political office at the highest level in this country are all freaking liars. Just accept that. The right, liars. The left, liars. Liars, liars, liars. Okay? Freaking liars. Liars always use the truth to sell a lie. This nation's heritage is one of people that come here from other places and add to it. It is why we were, at least for a time, the greatest nation that's ever existed. More powerful from a, from a social standpoint, more powerful from an economic standpoint, more powerful from a drawing standpoint of making people want to come be part of us. My actual fear is one you kind of sort of tap danced around. It's the education system. It's the educational system. Our universities are, are, are brainwashing our youth. The, the, the white majority of students are being brainwashed to be self-loathing. If you want to totally F up a person's future, if you want to ruin the ability of that person to ever provide meaningful contributions to society, make a person hate themselves. If you can create self-loathing in a human being, you can destroy that human being's 
uh, ability to write their own future, you can completely control them, and you can drive them into a corner of sniveling, snot-slinging, whining, bitching, excuse-making crap that never gets anything done. And that's the grave danger to the heritage of America. It is not people coming here from other places. It is not people of other religions. It is not people of other skin colors. This country was built by people of varying skin colors and varying heritage, and respecting, for God's sakes, the heritage of other people. Okay? To actually have a point where we, we, we actually, you know, we have things. Think about this. We have St. Patrick's Day here. And everybody wears green and claims to have a little Irish in them, even though when you know you're bullshitting, because you don't. Okay? I'm not saying all of you, but there's a lot of you that, you know, well, there was this great uncle of ours, yeah, whatever, Patty O'Brien, my ass, okay? You know? We, we celebrated, and it's only now that we're beginning to like pull back from that. You know, people get upset now about Cinco de Mayo. It's America, it's America. I want no Cinco de Mayo here. Well, we have the fifth of May, whether you 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 like it or not. It, as a as a republic, we should be actually happy when we hear other nations celebrating their independence from the same European oligarchy that we declared our independence from, especially when they're our southern neighbor. We're coming here, take our jobs! Yeah, go watch South Park, all right? Because that's about the, the, the mental level you're working at there. Our jobs are being taken faster by evolution and technology and machinery than they are illegal immigrants. I'm sick of hearing people bitch about illegal immigrants. You want to go pick on, just head your ass to South Florida right now. And, and none of you are on, none of you that bitch about it are on the way there. None of you. Well, Americans that do that work, no, they won't. And pretty soon, the, the illegal immigrant won't be doing that work either. The only reason that work's not done by automation right now is you go look at an orange tree, you have to pick which oranges to pick. You can't just shake the tree and take everything like you do with other uh, commodities. That's going to go away. There's a, there, there's a machine now. Out of, out of, it's either out of Holland or Germany that drives through a row in an organic farm with these little tiny stampers and just destroys every weed and leaves everything else alone. The, the problems you think we have are so tiny compared to the evolutionary problems of technology and us adapting to them that we really have that people are short-sighted. The, the danger to our country, the primary danger to our country today is the university system. It really is. All you have to do is look at some of the nonsense coming out. Ben Falk just sent me a thing where a, a, a professor that lives on, it's either campus, I think it's Yale, basically said, hey, look, if you see anybody wearing a Halloween costume this year that's offensive to you, don't bring it to the staff. Either choose not to, to, to participate, just don't look at it. Or if you think there's a problem, try to have a rational conversation about why that's offensive. They wanted to kill this guy. Because his wife sent that email. I'll put a link to that in the show notes today. This is how screwed up the universe, Yale, Yale University. We have the University of Tennessee asking students to use Z for pronouns instead of he and she so that we're, we're gender neutral with our pronouns. This is a problem. This is a mental illness. This is a sickness. And this isn't being brought to us by refugees from Syria. Okay, This is being brought to us by the supposed intellectuals who are supposed to be smarter than all of us. And in some ways they are. 
the people doing the the work, the minions of, of, of the of the people truly in charge at the these university professors and all, they've bought into their own bullshit. They went through their own version of this, and they've spent their entire life reinforcing the bias that was heaped on them by the previous generation of university teachers. But this is nonsense. And I'm going to hear from college teachers say, "I don't teach stuff like that." Yeah, but you are the minority, and you are being driven out. So what's my hope? I think that we're rapidly moving toward a place where that whole university system falls apart anyway. That they're so self-destructive that as these young kids begin to get into their 30s, they're starting to realize that everything you were taught about this crap, such as white male privilege, right, and, and all this social warrior justice bullshit is all just that. It's bullshit. When you go out and actually try to make something of yourself, you start to realize that we still live in a duocracy. We still live in a place where the people that will succeed will be the people that get shit done. I think that is America. The belief that the people that do the most deserve to benefit from their efforts, that to me is a true American ideal. And I don't care if that person is an Asian immigrant that slept on the floor of a donut shop for four years to buy the donut shop, buy a house, and expand, which is a real story I told before, and becomes a multi-millionaire real estate investor, or some poor kid that grew up like I did that becomes a multi-millionaire real estate investor. I don't care what your ethnicity is. I care that you sacrifice, you dedicate yourself, you do the best you can for yourself, your family, your community, and that you reach a point of reward for that effort. And it's becoming harder and harder to find ways to do just that. But there still are ways to do just that. Every problem is an opportunity. That's another thing I think that can unify America. If we stop seeing problems as something that the government should do away with and start seeing problems as opportunities that we can address, then we start to evolve through this instead of being run over by this evolution. We're being gifted. We're being gifted with the elimination of the most meaning, me, uh, me, uh, meaningless work, the most menial work. The stuff nobody really wants to do. But it takes a certain maturity as a species to recognize that. And to say then we still have to develop the discipline. Because that's what this did for us. All these menial jobs allowed young people who had never worked to learn how to freaking work. To learn to value effort. To learn to, to, to conceive of structure. To learn that your word had to matter. All those things. If we're going to technologically evolve past that entry point, then we have to, as a species, evolve to a point where we're able to provide that self-discipline to ourselves and to our young people. And instead, we've taken this lavishness that we have, this, this false lavishness that's provided with debt, And all you professors out there screwing up these kids' minds, I want you to realize what a parasite you are. You are paying for your lifestyle of sitting around with things like tenure and spending all your time in classrooms telling other people how to live when most of you have never done a damn thing productive in society yourselves. That's 100% today funded with their future efforts through the formation of debt. And that false lavishness has allowed us to actually create these pockets 
of self-loathing and self-hatred and everybody's stupid but me and everybody outside of my little bubble's wrong. But here's the point. All those little bubbles, those little university bubbles that exist all over the place with safe places, and I don't want to be offended, and no one should say something I don't want to hear, and blah, right? That never works off campus. It's the single biggest threat to America's culture. It's not radical Islam, because that shit don't float here, okay? It just doesn't. It's not some other nation. It's not people that come here for a better life. The single biggest threat to America is teaching our children to despise what it means to be American, to take opportunity and call it privilege. Because if you call it privilege, then you can squander it in the name of equality. If you call it opportunity, it's your damn fault when you don't take it, and you're, you, you are wasting opportunity by not taking it. And that's my hope. That's why I believe it'll be okay. Because I believe this system is becoming so encumbered with its own bullshit that we're watching it fall apart in its death throes right now. Because the people holding it together, look at how they're holding it. I challenge you today to, to look at two links, if nothing else, from the show today. The story about Yale and these the students acting like spoiled little five-year-old kids because they got an email they didn't like. And some beanhead at the University of Tennessee saying, I feel more comfortable when people ask me how I prefer my pronouns. Good luck in the real world to any of those people. And that's why I think that as dangerous as it is, it's inherently self-limiting. Because it only works there. Sooner or later, these people have to go out and start trying to build a life. And while they may be wholly unprepared for that, and that might be its own problem, sooner or later, when nothing works you got to stop blaming somebody else and do something about it. That's what I think will hold America together. That in the end, when we're pushed to the point where we have to make that decision, the majority of us will make the right decision, no matter what our native language is, no matter what the color of our skin is, no matter what God we worship or do not worship. And I think that anybody who tries to make the case that, 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 that somebody is a threat to this country because of the color of their skin, their faith of choice, or their native language is a fear monger. They may believe the fear themselves, but then they're then, they're, they're then selling that fear to others. This nation was built by people of every culture. Well, when they used to come here, no. Stop believing bullshit. And remember, just because a liar says something doesn't mean it's not true. Liars always use the truth to sell a lie. Leaders in one college are having some trouble with pronouns, apparently, so they're dropping he and she, and instead calling everyone Z. Uh, yeah, it's true. The University of Tennessee Knoxville Office of Diversity and Inclusion says that they're concerned that students might be offended if people use traditional pronouns. They say that they're working on making their campus welcoming for everyone. And for Okay, totally different question. Back to basic preparedness here. Uh, three questions, really. I'm going to go through this one fast because it's really not that complicated. Levi asks about water storage. So when using existing gutters to capture water off a shingle roof, how do you ensure only clean water free from asphalt particles enters the container? Will the roof particles have a negative impact on plants and animals? Or should I just put a, a spigot a few inches off the bottom and try not to filter try not to filter the water upon entry? Well, there's a lot of ways to handle that. The simplest one 
is with what's called a first flush system, and you can look up on YouTube how to do that. There's a couple different versions of them. The, probably the simplest one is you take a long piece of four-inch pipe uh, with a drain in the bottom, and that goes all the way down to the ground, and the top of that pipe comes all the way back up to uh, your diversion that goes down into your storage tank. And into that pipe you put a float. A lot of times if you use the right size pipe, you can actually use the same float that's in your toilet bowl, correct? The toilet bowl float, the little arm floater. Uh, old school toilet bowl, not the ones that are in the center now, but the old ones had an arm with a little bubble thing out there. Uh, you can set that inside the, the pipe. And what happens is, is the water fills the pipe up until the float comes to the top, and then the water diverts over into the tank. Again, you can look this up on YouTube. There's other options. There's first flushes that basically, like, there's a container that fills up, and when that container fills up, gravity takes it, and it drops down, and then it diverts over to your tank. There's a lot of different ways to do what's called first flush, and, and those are some ways to do that. Personally, I use a filtration system with a small 12-volt pump, uh, SureFlow pump. It's converted to run on AC, but I can still switch it back and run it on DC for backup uh, in, in my facility, and I don't really worry about it. I, I just don't. Uh, I'm not worried about, well, another thing is, okay, so my roof, I'm not worried about asphalt because I have a metal roof. So that, that right there changes things a great deal as to whether or not you want to use first flush and what are you using the water for and what do you do with it after it comes out. Um, you could certainly create a, a particle filter that's filled out larger particles. The problem, you know, just where the water runs into your tank, the problem with that is if that clogs, then you create an overflow and backflow and flooding situation for yourself. Um, it can flood out things like basements or whatever, depending on the building. So the best case is to put in a first uh, flush uh, preventer, uh, first, uh, first flush diverter, which allows a certain amount of water, usually somewhere in the neighborhoods of uh, 30 to 50 gallons to be collected and then divert. And then all the water that comes after that's already had that initial first flush of, of gunk and nastiness coming off the roof. Uh, or to at least then filter the water as it's used, which is really easy to do. Someday I should do a video of my little system that we put in uh, with my pump and my filter system. It's, it's really, really simple. Next one is, how do you prevent or minimize the growth of algae in stored water that will be exposed to sunlight on roof catchment rain barrels? Uh, what undesirable effects arise in algae is present in water, particularly water that's going to be used to water plants, animals, and possibly humans? Well, obviously, if you have stuff growing in there, there could be things growing in there that are toxic to you or your animals, though animals generally can drink water that will make a person very sick and be fine. I'm not saying they can drink all toxic water. I'm just saying things that your dog can drink and be fine, that doesn't mean you could drink it and be fine. So it's a little less concerning with, with animals, though there are some pathogenic organisms that can grow in water, uh, and, and there are certain forms of algae that are more more uh, concerning than others. Light makes algae. No light, no algae. You block the light. It is that simple. With rain barrels, I mean, you can only collect so much water with rain barrels anyway. They're not generally my preferred method of storing water. I think if you're not storing at least three to 500 gallons of water, you kind of don't really have much of a purpose in, in putting in rain catchment. Because if you have a 55-gallon rain barrel and you get one rain event of a quarter inch, you've overflowed that thing many times. And all of that water has been wasted. And 50 gallons is not going to really change the price of tea in China. Uh, I prefer to use very large um, rain catchment systems, like 1,500 gallons and up. I buy the black variety. That takes care of it. They're, they're made to do this. 
And that's the best thing you can do. Go to some place local, like Tractor Supplier, what have you. Size your your tank appropriately. Get the black version. They have automatic baffling that allows for overflow across the top. Plumb that in, and you just don't have to worry about it. Otherwise, you're going to have to do something to block light. Many people do use things like the IBC totes. Those can be painted black. You can build up something, around, you know, basically put paneling around them uh, because they have that metal cage. You can attach things to those very easily, but you got to block the light. That's it. There's no other really good way to do this other than to block light to keep down your algal growth. And then he says, will HDP containers split if water is allowed to freeze in them, even if the water level is below full in northern Alabama, we experience hazel hard freezes in winter. I'd like to leave my containers out year-round with at least some water in them. Plastic will tolerate, the, uh, if the plastic will tolerate temperature change. Yes, uh, you do not have to, if you have room for water to expand, in general, most containers that are designed to hold water, that's the key, won't split. In fact, I know of stories where they're in, in Korea where we had a certain amount of uh, fuel that was given to locals that they would take uh, gas cans, which are HDPE, by the way, fill them with water and leave them out to freeze. Because the, the, the freeze would actually stretch the plastic, and since these were very tough HDPE containers, they would actually hold a little bit more than five gallons, and when they'd go to get their ration of gas, instead of, like, they didn't meter the gas, they just filled the can. So they'd get a little extra every time. But that is a very um, resilient, strong, purposefully built HDPE container. I've also gotten the ones that are made for water, like the five-gallon ones that you buy at Walmart for twice as much as a gas can. I'm just saying, same plastic, not as well built, uh, but blue, So you know, and it's just water on it, okay? Um, where I've filled those up, and they're thinner, and they have thinner walls, and I, I've had them have the seams basically split sitting in the back of a pickup truck driving down to the beach, just on the vibrations. So it all depends on how well built are they. Most of the people I know that are using things like IBC totes uh, seem to have no problem with that, especially, again, yes, it, do you leave some space for the water to expand. Now, where you usually get problems are where fittings are. Even if you have water expansion, if you have, because I lose a lot of times uh, hose bibs this way out the bottom of my water tanks. you got 1,500 gallons of water and ice above it, And even if there's room for that to expand, even if the container can handle it, all that pressure is pushing down, the water freezes in the hose bib, and the hose bib, bib cracks. Uh, which is a good reason to use the swing-handled hose bibs, the swing valve ones, because what happens is they fracture on the side, and they generally won't leak even when they're closed or open when that happens. I don't know exactly how that works, but I've got quite a few of them I just stopped replacing because I can shut it off, they don't leak. I can turn it on, they don't leak. It's only in between when they... Spurt a little water out the side. Uh, so that's more of your concern. Where are your pipes and your fittings that go in and out? Right? Can those break? Um, again, I don't know exactly what kind of container you're looking to use here, but I would advise you very much against you know, these $8,500, $50 gallon rain barrels that they sell at places like Tractor Supply and Home Depot and Lowe's, etc., and very much toward either purpose-built water tanks, spend the money and get the right equipment for the job, Or if you're going to self, you know, plumb stuff together and make it work, look at IBC totes. Those are very, very strong industrial grade components. And again, just because the, the the tank won't rupture doesn't mean your fittings and your adjacent plumbing, etc., won't rupture. So that's generally what you have to look more at protecting some way uh, with insulation or what have you.
Real quick one right here. Derek sends me this. It says, a while back you mentioned the companies would start crafting degree programs to fill open positions. I agree with you, but many folks laughed when I suggested, well, here's Google's new micro degree offered through Udacity. That didn't take long. Derek says, become a senior web developer. Google saw the need to help web developers stand out from the crowd, so they turn to Udacity. Together we have built the Senior Web Developer Nano Degree Program. It launches in December, but it's being announced at Google's Chrome Development Summit today. Sign up now to receive priority notification when enrollment opens, and I'll put a link to the notes where you can learn more about that. This is just cracking the, the ice, so to speak. Remember when I said my hope with the, 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 the major, biggest danger in America today being our, our, our university system, teaching our, our children to basically loathe themselves? Um, this is why that doesn't matter. Because the jobs that are going to still be available are going to be filled through people that go through this type of program. You know, Google's not looking for someone that feels bad about their white male privilege or blames They're, they're a white male co-worker. They're looking for someone that can do the freaking job they want done so that when they pay them, they get what they paid for. That's what Google wants. So what Google said is, you know what, you, this, this is what it means. When a company like Google says, we're going to put together our own nano degree program. And if you take this class and you do well in it, there's a job waiting for you on the other side. The existing degree programs from the universities suck ass. That's what it means. That means that the graduates that are being produced today by our vaulted university system are not qualified to be web developers for Google, and Google has had to go out and create their own program so that the need that they have can be filled. And it's just going to keep happening, and keep happening, and keep happening, and keep happening. It really is. Um, and this is not something new. It's just that now there's a new way... To, to address this program. Oh, by the way, you can also take intro to programming as a nano degree, front end web developer as a nano degree, or full stack web developer as a nano degree through this program. I'm just saying. We now have a way to make this stuff scalable. A company like Google, or let's say a company that needs a sales team, can look at this and say, okay, we need to hire uh, 200, 300, 1,000 people. And, uh, The, the, the people that we really need to do this don't exist. Well, we can develop a training program that we can partner with another company. We can actually sell the training. And then we can take the best of the people that complete it, and the rest of them we actually made a little bit of money on. And they didn't do well enough, so we're not going to hire them. But if we do have tremendous growth, then we can just work our way down the echelon of qualified people that have taken this course. Now, in the past, if you wanted to do that, it would have been really expensive to do. But today, with new technologies, these companies can create that training program once and maybe have one guy grade projects or answer questions and a couple of things that we would you know, look at like teacher's assistant level people there. And, and you can actually take hiring managers. They're going to have these people working for them and just say, this is part of your responsibility now to kind of go through this because this is where your candidates are going to come from. So you have a chance to see them as students and as graduates, not just as a resume. And, and we're, they're going to do this with everything, folks. With everything. The, the, the university systems are inherently inefficient. They are producing people that come out of school in massive debt and have no 
actual skills. Now, whenever I say this, I, I hear from people, where are doctors going to go? Okay, doctors can go to medical school. Engineers can go to engineering school. And there is a place for university education, but it's at a university level. And most of the people going through the university system now cannot are not only not capable of doing true college-level work upon entry, they're not capable of doing it upon exit when they have their degree. Because we're sending every child to college to learn bullshit with no practical applications. The, 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 the lower the floor has become, the lower the average quality has become. We live in a society where maybe 20% of people should be going to a true university level. 20%. You know why? Because that's, that's how much of the jobs, without a decline in employment, by the way, which is coming, exist that actually require it. So everybody beyond that 20%, especially outside of specialized fields, okay, engineering, again, yes, okay, certain types of mathematics, architecture, which is really to me an engineering discipline, uh, medicine, at, at the, the high-level medical stuff, certain things like that, um, all those things require a, a really intensive high-level of training, but even that... You know how many students go to, to, to college, I'm going to be an engineer, and by their sophomore year they've changed majors and they come out with a degree in, you know, I don't know, bitterness studies or uh, uh, philosophy or marketing, right? Because they found out that the engineering was too was beyond them. All of that could be learned through these courses that don't require all this expense and all this overhead. And it's coming. And it's going to come like an avalanche, And it's, it's not that far away from a point where major employers for the jobs that are available talk to a candidate and say, well, what's your educational background? And they say, I have a bachelor's degree from the University of Texas or whatever in uh, business management. And they go, so? So what? What education do you have that's relevant to this job? Well, this is a job in business. No, 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 no. What, 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 what specialized courses have you taken that actually enable you to use the technology that we are using right now that's currently evolving? See, that's, that's the other thing that, like, just people can't get through their heads yet. You can't, you can't take most of today's technology and teach it in, in, in our current educational system under its current paradigm because it's actually evolving while you're putting it into a textbook. It can't go in a textbook. By the time a textbook comes off the end of the line into a printed form so some retired professor can make money on it because he knew somebody inside the system that set him up with that little, you know, that little uh, insider nepotism uh, cash roll thing, okay, where students are forced to pay $300 for a book that they couldn't sell one copy of if it wasn't in the system and required. Just saying. How wasteful is that? By the time that book comes off the line, even if it's written today, With, at the cutting edge level of technology, it's largely irrelevant by the time the first printing's done. You, you can't force this rapidly evolving space into the stagnant dogma. Now, that's why it works for medicine. Because in spite of the fact that medicine is evolving, basic fundamentals of human health, like you need to breathe, don't change. If you bleed out, you die. doesn't change. 
The human body works the same way today as it will tomorrow, though there may be quite a bit of prosthesis and implants and things like that. But in the end, a heart beats a certain way. Blood circulates a certain way. Engineering, in spite of the fact that we're evolving what engineers do, the fundamental underlying mathematics for load-bearing are not going to change. As new materials come along that can do what old materials can't, the mathematics still apply. In fact, that's how we find those. But when we start looking at so many of the other things people do for a living, the 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 way by which they're going to do them. I'll put it to you this way: in high school, I actually had a course because I was a I was a business focus in high school that taught us about things like typewriters, not just typing class, but like I had this this like kind of like general office skills course. Like here's how you maintain your typewriter. We actually had a l- little project with our own little like fake filing box where we learned how to file, okay? Um, stuff like that, like like how to set a desk up, right? How how to have your desk be presentable in an office. And some of you are thinking maybe we should bring things like that back because these kids today don't know how to do that. But why? 90% of what was on your desk in 1985, about the time I took this course, no one uses anymore. I mean, I'm not real worried about works. And I mean, this thing had down to, where does your adding machine go? You know, and 10 key skills. And how you file the strip that comes out of an adding machine. That's not that long ago that we had this type of coursework in high school. We can't think like that now. All of that stuff's gone. And we're still using the same, even though we've evolved. Yes, they have tablets and computer labs and free Wi-Fi so everybody can download music in the dorms, right, and all that stuff. It doesn't matter. We're still using the same paradigm. Everybody goes to a classroom. Everybody listens to one guy talk. Everybody gets reading assignments and writing assignments and does them. Uh, the professors generally never even look at the work. Their TAs do that. I mean, this is the same crap we've been doing for a hundred years. The difference is a hundred years ago, the best and brightest capable of doing the work at that level went. And today the college system has become a business, which exists solely because of easy financing. That's the only reason it exists today. Just look at the growth of the university system. Not just new schools, but the size of the campuses. If you just look between 1970 and 2015 at how big average campuses have gotten and and the growth of existing institutions. So what I'm saying about that is like, so you have, you know, the University of Pennsylvania, right? Penn, Penn State University. And at one time it was just Penn State. Now there's all these little satellite campuses, Because you can't even fit enough people on the campuses they have anymore to to make all the money that they could make. It's become a production model. And this is the beginning of the end. It costs too much. It provides too little. The only way to afford a degree today is to get a depreciating asset, which is your degree. The value of a degree is going down like a rock right now. The overall value of a degree is in decline. It's priceless, Jack. No, it's not. Quit believing your 1977 schoolhouse rock bullshit. The value of a degree, a person with a bachelor's degree in any general discipline today, the value of that degree has declined by at least half of what it meant as a standalone thing, let's say from 1985 to 2015. In those 30 years, the value's been cut in half. 
what it meant. If you had a bachelor's degree in business management with decent grades in 1985 and you were looking for a job, if you didn't find one, you weren't really looking. And a decent job with potential and growth and opportunity. And now that degree is a license to look for work. That's all that it is. But it costs three, four, five, some cases and instances, six to eight times more than it did back then. It's all paid for with debt. That system, like, I don't care what you want to believe about education. That system cannot be sustained. And this is the solution. Tailored degrees that cost a fraction of what they would otherwise, that include no information except that which you need to perform the task the employer is looking for on the other end. Well, what about arts and humanities? And all that shit's free on the internet. All that shit's free on the internet without enriching some retired professor through the textbook nepotism scam. What you really want to know, one of the biggest wasteful things in our educational system today, that's what it is. Printing textbooks for three to $500 a book so that a professor with tenure can make a little bit more money by having his book forced on students when we can produce a kabillion books in electronic format for next to nothing. But you know what the solution will be? Ebooks for $250 versus $350. Watch them come up with a way to sell used electronic books at the used electronic bookstore because they will not go quietly into the night. They will cling on like Klingons, like little turd balls around your anus hairs that don't want to let go. It's going to hurt to extract, but they got to go. That's the university system of today. Let's take another one. Switching back over to something more of a prepper-based type thing. Not really prepper, so much more of a, a kitchen-based thing, I guess you'd say. Uh, Clinton from uh, Ohio says, What are your thoughts on stuffing tubes that attach to meat grinders? Background, I have uh, a number 22 bolt-down manual meat grinder. Love to try my hand at making sausage and casings. The price tag on vertical stuffer starts at 150 and goes up from there. I've heard that hand presses, 5-pound, 11-pound, are worthless. Uh, P.S. The plastic handle that came with it was junk. Fortunately, I was able to turn down a nice piece of Osage orange and make a new handle. Now I love it. Uh, thanks, Clinton in Ohio. Um, here's the deal with sausage stuffing. Um, no matter what tool you're using to do it, this is one of those things where someone will use a tool and make it look like the best tool you've ever seen, and somebody else will use it, and you'll think that tool is junk. Why? Stuffing sausage is a skill. It's not as easy as you would think. It's not just shove the tube on there and start cranking it out and, and feed it and fill it, and, and it is at the same time. That's exactly what it is. That's all that it is, but there is a way to do it. And I think the best stuffers, if you're going to use a manual stuffer, are the large vertical stuffers you're talking about, and they have a crank. So you turn a crank, and as you turn that crank down a screw, it pushes out the bottom, and you're going to spend more money on them. They're better. The, 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 the stuffers that work with the Cabela's and similar electric grinders actually work really well. From what, um, what I, what I see here, you've got a manual meat grinder. Um, this is going to, just so you understand, this is definitely going to be a two-person operation. Unless you, you know, put some kind of motor on your, your grinder or something like that, you're, you're not going to be able to sit there, feed the meat, turn the handle, and, and feed your sausage. Somebody's going to email me and tell me that they've done it, and then you're really good at it. And then you know that you try to, like, teach somebody to do it. It's not as easy as it looks. So, 
I think you can do that. I think it's not very expensive, right, to get the tubes and, and bolt it on and give it a shot. But a lot's going to have to do with taking good care of your casings, getting them, you know, soaked and, 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 and limbered up. And it's just a skill that you have to teach yourself. It's, it's, it's really easy once you get the feel for it. And I'd say just give it a shot. Um, but I think if you're going to, if you're going to make, you know, 10 pounds of sausage a couple times a year, uh, and, and, and use a stuff casing that you could probably get by with, as long as you got somebody to turn the ha handle for you, you can probably get by with this just fine. Okay. We used to do it at home, uh, in Pennsylvania with deer sausage, uh, with a, with a hand crank bolt down grinder, just like you're talking about. Uh, and it worked okay. But I remember one time I, I did up 60 pounds of sausage and my uncle took me to this, this, this older gentleman's house and he said he's going to teach us how to use his, his, uh, stuff or, And he had the great big, like old school vertical stuff where you could put, I think, about 20 pounds in a shot. Because um, about half of it, maybe maybe 30 pounds, because like half it was like two runs and it was done. And we had all the casings ready to go and everything. And we get there and I'm doing it and I'm kind of half fast. And he goes, Get out of the way. And uh, he says, You just turn that crank and you, I'll tell you, you go faster or slower. And after not long, I got kind of the speed down where he didn't have to say anything. And man, that guy went through that stuff like that. Um, he just looked like, and it's, it's kind of a motion with you're using your pinky, then your next finger, then your middle finger, then your index finger, and just kind of feeding it. Um, and it just takes, just takes time to where you can get it done. And, uh, I was a pretty young kid at the time. I think it was like 13 or 14. So I didn't learn a lot that day other than what could be done. Cause it was like, he was like this old crotchety old man, old Korean war veteran. And uh, he just like, I want to get it done. Right. So like you get shoved out of the way as a kid and he just knocks out 60 pounds of sausage We had a little bit left over. We took it inside. He gave it to his wife. She made us basically deer burgers with it. It was a good day overall. Um, but those are your better machines, either your automated machines or your large-scale stuffers. Yeah, they cost more. So, again, what I'm saying is it, why not try this, get a feel for it, see how you like it. But if you're going to go to large-scale production, if you're going to start running 20, 30, 40 pounds at a, a shot, you're probably going to want to get a better piece of equipment, and you're probably going to want to get an electric grinder and an electric mixer. And I would look to Cabela's for those. I learned about those uh, classes of equipment from Kevin Keegan. That's what he has. That stuff works fabulous. Even the half-horsepower grinder, and that can hook right up to the meat mixer. Man, that stuff is phenomenal, and it's quick and it's fast. Uh, I cut up over 100 pounds of pork. We, we half-froze it, put it through Kevin's half-horsepower grinder. I think it took us all in all 15 minutes to go through over 100 pounds of meat. It was literally one guy was grinding, and I was – piling it in as fast as I could get the, the cut up. I mean, it was well cut and cubed, right? But as fast as I could get it in there, it was coming out the other end. It, it was pretty impressive. Uh, so let's take another one. Uh, coming back to the economy, one place that we always look to see future trends is in uh, construction equipment. Because if you're not building stuff, mining stuff, digging holes, uh, then we don't have growth. And uh, there's an article out in Zero Head sent to me by Zach, and uh, it says the for Caterpillar, the depression has never been worse, but it has a cunning plan on how to deal with it. And I, this is how I take Zero Hedge. Zero Hedge overall is an economic alarmist blog. It makes a living pointing out how bad things are all the time. There's almost never an article on Zero Hedge that says, here's a good sign, which means it's weighted toward the negative. But it doesn't mean that it's always wrong. So we have to filter through that lens. But in this case, this is 100% factual, and it's an interesting thing to think about. Moments ago, Caterpillar reported its latest of monthly retail statistics, 
and the numbers have never been worse. Not only is the dead cat bounce in the U.S. sales finally over, tumbling 8% year-to-year after a 4% decline in September and hugging the flat line for the past few months, but sales elsewhere around the globe were a complete debacle. Asia-Pacific, mostly China, was down 28%, a dramatic drop from the 17% uh, down uh, a month ago. Uh, EAM dropping 13%, Latin America down 36%. But global retail sales just posted a massive 16% drop in the past month after dropping 9% a year ago and another 12% in 2013. This was the biggest annual drop since early 2010. As the chart shows below, CAD has suffered a record 35 months or nearly three years of consecutive declining annual retail sales, something unprecedented, unprecedented in a company in company history and set to surpass the only 19-month declining during the great financial crisis by a factor of two. So they're, they're doubly as bad as they were during the Great Recession, though not as deep but much longer. Worse, the mar- market is no longer rewarding stock buybacks. Caterpillar suddenly finds itself flailing in the gale-strength winds of what nobody can claim any longer is not a global industrial depression. However, there is good news. While Caterpillar's revenue and cash flows may be plummeting with every passing month, at least the company has a cunning plan of how to recover some inventory. According to the Wall Street Journal, Caterpillar is eager to reassure its shareholders it won't get burned on equipment leased to customers in China, even as the economy cools there. Cat Financial Services President Kent Adams said during a conference call on Thursday that the company keeps tabs on the position of machinery electronically through its product link system. If a customer falls behind, we have the ability to derate the engine or turn the engine off. And we've set up legal presence in all provinces of China. In other words, any and all of China's lessors who fall behind on their payments will suddenly find their excavator's engine shut down, no longer operable, stuck in the middle of a mine quarry or construction site with a paperweight uh, weighing dozens of tons. So this is great news, right? After all, at least Caterpillar will have recourse to its equipment and can solidify its balance sheet. The problem, as we showed last week, is that there already is an epic glut of cat-heavy equipment in the wild. How epic? Here's a reminder of what cat products recently sold for at auction. Was 2.9 million, now 15,000 Caterpillar 992C wheel loader. Uh, and this is used equipment, but it, you can look at it and see it's not completely run out or anything. Was 2.7 million, now 46,000 Caterpillar D11N crawler tractor. Was 900,000, now 47.5 Caterpillar 775D rear dump truck. Um, now I, I want to preface this with this equipment selling at auction. You know, these the, this front end loader that's selling for you know 15 grand that was 2.9 million is probably not indicative of the total. And that piece of equipment has something wrong with it. it, it there, there, there's no. This is what I said in the beginning. Zero hedge runs through a negative lens. All things, it, it's it's trying to make the case. That the entire world is going to economically collapse tomorrow morning, that's its M.O. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It does mean that certain things get painted, uh, in this case, with a, maybe a different shade of cat yellow uh, than they really are. But this 992 this C wheel loader, <laughs> it's probably got $15,000 worth of steel. So even if it needs massive work, the fact that it's auctioning off at fifteen grand, something I mean, that's not good. Right, this D11N, 
My God. I mean, you're talking about metric shit tons of steel there. $46,000? I bet there's $20,000 in raw, raw scrap steel value in, in a D11N. These are, these are big pieces. Of, I want you to understand, this is not... This is not the type of stuff that you're used to seeing at the, the little yard down the street. This is major heavy-duty equipment. This $900,000 rear dump truck, this is one of these dump trucks that, like, if you get stuck with a normal car in the, in the, in the tire track, you might not be able to get out. You can drive down it like it's a, a cut road, okay? This is big equipment. So this, this is indicative of a slowdown in mining more than anything else, and major large-scale construction projects, specifically in Asia-Pacific Asia and Australia. And the Australian mining has been largely going to support development in China. So these two are intrinsically connected to each other. But what I think is interesting to look at and think about how it might play out at a much larger scale that's all more personal to us is what Kat says. So what Kat's saying is if you lease my dozer or excavator or whatever. And, uh, you know, 36 months into your lease, 48 months into your lease, it's time for either renew or return the equipment and pay your disposal fee or get a new piece of equipment and swap it over or whatever you're going to do. I can just push a button somewhere and that piece of equipment won't run. You think the Chinese care? You think the Australians care? You think they don't know, like, this piece of equipment's about to end its lease? And or we're not going to pay for this equipment, so they'll they'll just move it out of a place where it'd be in the way, and they'll just let it sit there. So cattle disable it, and they'll say, "Well, come get it." We're talking about equipment here, like the excavator that did my work for me was like a thirty-two uh, ton excavator. Um, it's expensive to get it from Fort Worth to my house just to get it here on a trailer, and <laughs> I live technically in Fort Worth. Right? We're talking 15, 20 miles. How much do you think it takes to move a piece of equipment three or four times that size from Australia to some other country, whether it's back here or not? The, the bigger thing, though, is to examine. Have you ever exactly asked yourself, why would a manufacturer of equipment want to go into a lease model in the first place? I mean, if you think about it, if I lease you a car, three years later when you bring it back, it's my problem. Now, I've built a lot of things into the lease, but I can't really tell how you've handled that car and maintained it. I know that you've done your oil changes on time and everything because you probably did it with me, so I get service work out of it. But in the end, I have to deal with that car. I have to find the next place for that car to go. Where if I sell you the car, it's your problem, not mine. There's two reasons, and only two reasons, that a manufacturer benefits by leasing what it manufactures. The first is repeat business. If I lease you a vehicle or a piece of construction equipment or whatever, I know that at the end of that lease, as long as you've paid your bills, that piece of equipment is going to come back to me. So, so are you. And that you are probably going to look to either buy that piece of equipment outright now that you've paid off the front end and you've decided you want to keep it. So I get a sale anyway. Plus I got the business I might not have otherwise got. Uh, or more likely, you're now going to want a new, you've leased because of your business model and you need good, or your, your lifestyle quotient with a car and you want a newer vehicle, okay? One that's prepared to, to, to continue to work hard or have the latest features or whatever. So the first and primary reason that as a manufacturer, I want to lease my product 
is that I get you to come back and do repeat business with me. Ed Wallace, who does a show called Wheels, was just talking about a small dealership in Ohio. Number one leasing Toyota dealership in the country, or Mazda dealership in the country. They lease more Mazdas every month than anybody else does. But he's not that big a story. He does 190 to 220 uh, vehicles a month. But when Ed talked to him and said, well, how are you able to do that for this many years? He said, I've been doing it over 20 years. Every month, there's a couple hundred people bringing their vehicles back. All I got to do is put them in a new one and send them back down the road. The next reason is control of the secondary market. So one of the big things when I was in computer test equipment we used to do, every once in a while we would do buybacks. We'd buy any tester you have for a gift card or something like that, and we destroyed them. Because as long as they're out there being sold on a secondary market, we're, we're, you're, you're, you're cannibalizing the primary market. So if I'm cat and I sell you a, an excavator, a mid-sized excavator, 16,000 pounds, or 16 tons, Uh, 32,000 pound machine. Pretty big excavator. Talking to, getting up there $300,000, $400,000 or more. And you, you run the piss out of it for five years. And you decide you want a new piece of equipment. Not only might you go off to Kubota, who's running a, some kind of incentive, and I never get to look at your business. You'll trade it to Kubota, who were selling in a secondary market, completely independent of cats wanting needs. Or you might just sell it to another company who wants it. That person's now not going to end up on the primary market looking for a new piece of equipment because they found a used piece of equipment that meets their needs. Or if I send it back to Cat in this case, not only do they get to look at me and say, here's your next piece of equipment, here's all the things it'll do that it wouldn't do before, okay, or here's why you want to stay with us or whatever, and you get to do whatever incentive you can to keep my business, you get possession of the secondary product and you can decide how much to tune it up how much to sell it for, who to sell it for, what terms to offer with it. You actually control, to a large degree, the secondary market in a lease model on their primary market. Now, here's where it gets really nasty. This, this requires two things. One, somebody to finance all this shit. Okay? It is unsustainable unless you are your own actual bank for you to provide the financing for your customers for a lease model. Because you have a half million dollar piece of equipment leaving and a payment coming in that doesn't add up to a half million dollars over 36 months. And then you still have to deal with that. And your credit lines can only run so far. So you need to leverage your customer's credit lines. Okay? So you need a third-party financier who's willing to loan money on this shit. And you need a returning customer to make it all work. And you need a secondary market to dispose of the equipment. Cat is now in a position where they have none of those. Who wants to finance this shit right now? You know, what bank wants to finance a customer's purchase of a $2.9 million piece of equipment that's going to auction for under $100,000 three years from now when the lease is up, and there's a good chance that that customer will just not pay for it if anything goes wrong along the way? Okay, What are the odds that the customer who now has the equipment in surplus is going to want more of it? So... And what secondary market exists when there's already a glut in the secondary market? And this is a bellwether for everything. This is a bellwether for everything because this is about how much production's going on in the world. And it's about a leveling off. But what it is, is bigger than that, is the, the lesson in economics on leasing. It's how cars work. And my prediction 
is this fundamental reality is going to hit the automotive industry right here in America next year or the year after. That that same thing is going to play out. We, we now have vehicles being leased at higher percentages than any time in the past. Financing will tighten up. The secondary market will be in a massive glut. And the desire of people to always upgrade will decline. That doesn't mean people won't. But you only need a little ripple to throw the whole thing off. And once one industry starts to go into decline, it has ripple effects through others. You also have declining employment. We got tough times ahead, guys. And, 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 and that's why you've got to be innovative. You've got to think. You've got to develop new skills. You've got to develop new ways of thinking. You can't blame all of these things for the problems that we're all going to go through. You have to figure your way out and your way around it. And there's ways around it. And there's massive opportunity coming at the same time all this is going on. I really need to get John Pugliano back on to discuss some of this stuff with me. And one of the ones I see with all this glut in construction equipment is this stuff is still good. It still works. Um Think of the earthworks that could be done with some of this stuff. Massive, broad-scale earthworks at a national level. I'm just saying, man, there's an opportunity there. I don't know if society's ready to take it yet, uh, but just with earthworks and a lot of our damaged ecosystems, the regeneration that could be accomplished, and just with earthworks along the Mississippi River, the amount of toxins that could no longer flow into our ocean, I'm not talking about... Uh, reducing carbon footprints. I'm not talking about telling people what they can and can't do. I'm not even talking about changing overall farming practices, though I think those would all be good things in, in many different ways. What I'm actually talking about, though, is simply changing the contours of the land in a scientific way that would allow the land to deal with all these surplus nitrates and do massive benefit for the whole Mississippi River Valley and certainly for the Delta region. And that could be done with a fraction of this equipment that's just sitting around. For less money than we could put in a new highway in from, I don't know, Dallas to Plano. Uh, so there are opportunities at every level. Which ones we take, it's up to us to decide. I want to finish up with one more that initially will seem like, well, uh, more doom and gloom, so to speak. But I'll explain why I think it's actually indicative of the type of opportunities that I've, I've been talking about. This is on Market Watch. And it says what the death of America, the American mall means for investors. Uh, and let me, I'm going to read this one to you. Last week, big box retailers such as Macy's and Nordstrom reported weak results for both, uh, both stocks came crashing down, inflicting damage on the retail sector and equity markets in general. I contend that what is happening to these companies is not the result of a weakening economy. Rather, it is due to a secular change, a paradigm shift in consumer behavior and retail commerce. Investors fail to recognize this at their own peril. What is most remarkable in this shift is the decline of traditional shopping over the past few years uh, at malls across the country. I refer to this phenomenon with no sense of hyperbole as the death of the American mall. Recently, I discussed this theory and its consequences for investors on WSJ Podcasts and Bloomberg Radio, but wanted to put my thoughts in writing for our Market Watch readers. Do you remember the classic movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High? It was the story which revolved around teenagers working and hanging out in a mall. I grew up in the 1960s, went to high school in the 70s, and graduated college in 82. During those years, malls in the United States were a destination for teens, tweens, and young adults. You would go there to get the latest record release. Those were vinyl discs, which played music on a turntable. Shop, grab a meal, see a flick, or just hang out with friends. It was also a great place to get a job. 
Over 30 years after the release of that iconic movie in 1982, the popularity of large shopping malls is now in decline and racing toward demise. In 2015, this fact has become increasingly apparent to many consumers, retailers, mall operators, and investors. So what is killing the American malls? It is a result of several economic societal issues. Here are some of the causal factors which support my opinion. Going to the mall as a destination or hangout is simply no longer necessary. Years ago, young people would go to the mall to see, be seen and be seen. That is no longer the case. Smartphones like Apple's iPhone, you can text a message group or individual and video chat. If you want to watch a movie, you can download it from one of many streaming services such as Netflix. Apple iTunes or Ultraviolet want some pizza or other food, then go to an app and order it for delivery. As for records, well, now we have digital downloads. Traditional malls were built in such configuration that at each end of a mall, a big box anchor store was placed. These were stores owned and operated by Macy's, Lords and Taylors, Bloomingdale's, Nordstrom, Sears, and JCPenney, to name a few. Sears and JCPenney are both companies which are struggling to survive now. The concept was to drive traffic into the mall via the big box retailers. There's no, this is no longer happening as it was in the past. In fact, in my travels to malls across the United States, I'm noticing more vacant stores within malls that do not have coming soon signs. I mentioned Apple before. Stores in malls which have an Apple retail store tend to have higher sales than stores without an Apple retail store. Next, the American consumer is astute and far more intelligent than they are given credit for. Using the Internet, they are able to perform price discovery and get the best prices for nearly any type of product. Shipping for many retailers is free. Amazon even has a premium service called Prime, which guarantees two-day delivery and subscription to its streaming video service. Further, the brick-and-mortar chains have built up their direct-to-consumer web-based sales and logistics networks. So even with gas prices as low as they are, the need to drive to a store, deal with parking hassles, waste valuable time is lessened with modern shopping technology. Um, you can read the rest if you want to. It's pretty long, but I guess you get the point. That basically Americans are shifting their spending, and they're not not spending. That we're spending, you know, as much or more money than we ever have. Uh, we we spend trillions and trillions of dollars every year. We're just like getting in our cars and going to a place to do it. And this is radically transforming things. And, and this is another thing to think about: how many jobs are lost every time a single mall closes. Just one mall. Well, I, I didn't have time to try to find that information for you, but the Mall of America has 11,000 employees that are year-round employees, and at seasonal peaks goes up to 13,000. So let's call it 10,000. Let's just say it's 10,000. And, and let's say that the average mall in America is one-tenth the size of the Mall of America, because it's like the biggest mall there is, right? And there's malls that are damn near that big. Grapevine Mills is a huge mall right here in Texas. Nowhere near as big as Mall of America. It's probably a third of that size. But let's just say the average mall is one-tenth the size of the Mall of America. When we take the big ones, the little ones, put it all together, that's a 1,000 employees. A 1,000 employees to a mall. So if... A hundred malls close. It's a hundred thousand jobs. It's a hundred thousand jobs of just a hundred malls close. Put that in perspective. There's about three hundred thousand full-time employees inside of HP. Now, true, those people are higher paid in general. I mean, the janitors included in that and, and what have you. But three hundred thousand people employed by HP. That means for every hundred malls that close in America, that we have roughly one-third of a company the size of HP, their jobs eliminated. Just from that one place. 
Now, how many other satellites exist around that mall? Just in restaurants, for instance. And most, Ameri you know, most American malls today, they have some you know, chain restaurants and stuff inside them. But then in the perimeter around the parking lot, you have you know, your, your, your larger chain restaurants generally take up residence there, not directly attached to the mall. So they can get you coming or going. Well, without that mall to draw those people in, the majority of those restaurants go out of business. Now, how many suppliers to that mall and that restaurant have their, their employment adversely affected? And then when you say, well, you know, the business just goes to places like Amazon or Walmart.com instead of Walmart brick and mortar. But the efficiencies lean out the employees. You, you, you have these Amazon facilities that, by the way, are struggling for employment. Right now, I just saw an advertisement for Amazon in Dallas, Texas. Well, actually, it's one of our suburbs. They're hiring employees, starting wage, $14 to $16 an hour, hiring them on the spot. So at the same time we have this decline in jobs, the, the places where the jobs are growing, they can't get employees. And you know what? You know why? No one really wants to go to work for $14 to $16 an hour and work third shift right now if they don't have to. And in that kind of situation, that's where you start out, you know, second or third shift. You have to work your way into first shift, just like we used to have to do. But now there's so many supportive programs and so many ways that you can be somewhat comfortably poor. It's easier to do that than go work for that kind of money. And some of you are thinking, I'd take that job fast. Well, get on down here and apply. The jobs are there. And there's a future with those companies. But at the same time there's a future, they're leaning out employees because they work on margins as thin as 1.5%. So the Amazons of the world, while they're one of the, the leading employers today, And one of the few employers that continuously are offering jobs and creating growth in employment, at the same time are working night and day to reduce that requirement for themselves. And, and you're moving again toward this world of automation where whatever you want, you point, click, and buy, and it shows up. And the goal of the entire industry is so as few people as necessary touch it. If you could get it done and not a single human being's hands ever touch it, including the mailman, which they're working on, that would be perfect. Machines never n never get sick. Sometimes they break, but they're repairable. They never complain. They never sue. They never form unions. You know? They don't whine. They don't complain. They don't bitch. They don't have to pick up their kids. They just do. And that's the goal. And here's the, you think, well, what the hell is the upside of this? This is like the blackest TSP in a long time. Well, it's the opportunity that exists because of this. It's what I call the rise of the new mom and pop. I was listening to you know the the mainstream media today on one of their morning shows. I don't know if it's today or whatever. My wife was watching lament the 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 demise of mom and pop businesses in America as though they really give a shit. And every Hallmark special for the holidays revolved around some mom-and-pop business that just can't make it. And everybody claims to give a shit, but where do we shop? Your claim that you care about mom-and-pop while you're drinking Starbucks coffee, okay, and buying your iPhone case from Amazon.com is, is kind of meaningless. And, and I don't mean to be too harsh, because the reality is we do care, but yet how do we do business with these companies? In this modern day. That's the challenge. And you, 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 So you go out of your way to go to the little mom and pop store downtown. You go through all this crap and traffic and get there. And they don't have what you really want. Or what they do have isn't really a mom and pop product. It's a name brand product that costs you 10% more to buy. 
after going through all this crap, and you could have ordered it on Amazon, gotten your shipping free, and it would have just showed up, and hell, for a couple dollars, they'll wrap the damn thing for you if it's a gift. But the very actions by large industries are enabling small people to do the same thing. If you want to be a mom and pop business today, then you need to do it right from the comfort of your own home. You need to take the same philosophy. I want as few people to touch my product as possible until it's in the hands of the customer. I want to automate as much as I possibly can. That doesn't mean you might not handcraft the good yourself. Or you might not have a group of artisans that particularly build a certain group of products. But once they're done with it, once they've manufactured it, you want it in the hands of machines. Because machines do what they're told. Machines do what they're told. Garbage in, garbage out, but good in, good. That's what nobody says about computers. Well, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Well, good in, good out. And where this story turned was this, 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 this family, this mom and pop business, went into the business of doing quilting, I guess is what it was. And now they have little stores popping up all over the country to meet demand. But they're just turnover stores. They don't really need them. They really could be doing all this 100% with delivery. A quilt just shows up. But it is one of those items where you still want to look at it, feel it, get to understand the quality. But technology is getting to the point where you have assurances of that. That you can get a view of it more holistically than you know you would think of like on a TV set in the past. The whole point, though, is even the, 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 the retail establishment growth... Is all from social media. This this older lady that, that's the head of the family kind of like just like took the social media and just did what she always did, which was talk to people, but used this different tool. And all of a sudden, she's a master of social media. She's not a master of social media. You're not a master of social media. You're a master of communication. And that's the opportunity today. If you can create value and communicate the value. You can build a business today. And as everything gets worse for the employee, up to a point, everything gets better for the entrepreneur. There's there's a, a problem here. And I have to acknowledge that problem before I give you too rosy of a picture of it. Being an entrepreneur and developing a product or service that you sell to somebody infers that the people buying from you will have an income so that they can buy your shit. So there is a point of diminishing returns where enough jobs are lost that you've destroyed the market for the material. But we are a long way from there. And as long as we keep innovating with these little businesses, we can mitigate a lot of this damage of automated replacement. Because what people really don't understand is the shift that's occurred. And, and, and to make you understand the shift, I have to take you back quite a while. Um, to an old movie. And I'll, I'll read to you the exchange I'm talking about. It's between a young guy named Ben and an older guy named Mr. McGuire. Mr. McGuire says, I just want to say one word to you, just one word. Ben says, yes, sir. Mr. McGuire says, are you listening? Ben says, yes, I am. Mr. McGuire says, plastics. Ben says, exactly how do you mean? Mr. McGuire says, there's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Ben says, yes, I will. This came out in the 50s, 60s era, when steel was the future, American steel. And, 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 and men grew up working in steel mills that their fathers and grandfathers worked in. 
And they knew their sons would grow up and work in those mills. And they made good blue-collar incomes, and steel was the way forward. When we hear plastics today, and we hear this exchange today, we think, well, duh. We look around our house, and half of the things we look at are plastic. The, 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 the thing that houses our computer is plastic. You know, the handles on many of even our utilitarian things like knives are plastic. The mouse that I use to, to, to move my cursor around so that I can look things up on the internet and put them on the show for use plastic. I have mead fermenting in front of me in bottles that are made out of plastic. I have an iPhone that's made out of, yes, metal, but also lots of plastic. It has a rubberized case, and rubber is really just a derivative of plastic. And modern rubber that's made from the same materials plastics are not made from a rubber tree is anyway. A little transistor radio in front of me is for emergency communications backup. It's made of plastic. There's plastic, 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 plastic. There's far more plastic in our homes today than there is steel. But this idea sounded revolutionary at the time this movie came out. To truly think that plastics were the way forward. And this was an analog to what was really going on. Well, the shift from a manufacturing-based economy to a technology-based economy. Plastics were just an analog to understand this massive shift that went on from the 60s and 70s into the, 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 the computer age of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. That's all it was. The shift from steel to plastic was just a metaphor of a shift from manufacturing to technology. Well, a little shift happened. About 1998, 1999, 2000, it really became evident. By then, companies like AT&T, etc., were looking at their corporate sales to their corporate clients and realizing the shift. It was a shift from voice to data. And we think of that as being the dawn of the Internet, but it's so much more. Because even the original internet connections that most of us remember, you've got mail. Remember that? Well, they were across truly a voice connection, but they began moving data across a voice circuit. But as we move to better forms of internet and better forms of wireless communication, LTE and 3G and DSL connections and uh, cable internet really threw things for a loop because a cable internet connection today does things that a person with a T1 couldn't imagine doing just a few years ago, really, in the grand scheme of things. Is it as good? Eh, that's debatable and goes into a technical explanation that involves having the whole highway to yourself and a slower speed limit or having no speed limit but not the whole highway to yourself. And I'll, I'll let that go. But in the end, the speeds that are uh, available and the, the throughput that's available to a person on a, a cable Internet connection today for $30, $40, $50 bucks a month rivals anything that a company spending thousands of dollars a month for a fractional T1 could have done back just 15 years ago. But see, that's, that's the, 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 the futures in plastics. You don't really understand it if you just see it the way AT&T did is they started grooming all their high-end salespeople to sell data connection versus voice connection. Okay? That's the micro. You don't see the macro impact. The macro impact is data has become so portable that it's caused the dynamic shift in the entire economy and the future of the economy due to data portability. 
It is the same shift that occurred when we went from manufacturing-based to a service and technology-based economy. And it rolled over millions of people. And and for see, we, we look at this and go, well, look at the recovery that we had, Ronald Reagan's morning in America, the 80s, the 90s boom, all this stuff. But what people forget is there are millions of Americans out there who never recovered with the recovery. Middle age to what you'd call young elderly today, people that lost jobs in the 80s that found a job eventually but never found a job that ever did for them what, it, what, what the job they lost did for their, their fathers. Billy Joel's Allentown, that song, tells the story of this. I grew up in the cold region of Pennsylvania. I saw it. I know people still living there. I knew a man when I was in high school that was grateful to have a $10 an hour job as a maintenance man at the local apartment housing projects. $10 an hour. He got $10 an hour. He got three weeks a year vacation. He got all public holidays off. He worked from eight to five and nobody bothered him. He was grateful for that job. That was a long time ago, Jack. $10 an hour was pretty good money. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Not for a full-time, skilled person. No, it wasn't. And here's the thing. Unfortunately, this guy was kind of like a second dad to me. He was one of my best friends, my father's. Um, he passed away about seven years ago. He still had his job. He did keep his job. Pretty steady employment being the maintenance man for our projects. Uh, he was making $12.50 an hour when he passed away. Let that sink in. Vietnam veteran. Grew up in a place where if you worked hard in the 70s, you could get a good job working for a plant, working for one of the mining companies, whatever. It never came back. And he settled into what he could get with what he had because he couldn't move into the technology world. And where he lived, the technology revolution largely ignored these little pockets, these rural pockets of the country that are finally now taking part in it. But for the first 20 years, they were ignored. So if you wouldn't leave, and that's what all the young people did with ambition, like me, we left, then you had to take what you could get. And if you were a little older and experienced, you got a cush job for $10 an hour fixing faucets and toilets for people that lived in government housing. And you were happy for it. That's the, the left behind of that evolution. This evolution is much bigger. This evolution is much bigger. I sit in a room right now looking at, still, after thinning them out, selling them back, doing whatever I can to get rid of printed books, four bookshelves of printed books in this room. And go, I don't even know why I have most of these. Some of them have some sentimental value to me. I'm looking at one right now I can see from here. It's called The Paras. It's about the British paratroopers. It was given to me by my, by my business partner, Neil Franklin. It's about the unit he served with. So that has some value to me. Most of this stuff I could care less, right? In fact, I couldn't care less is the right way to say it, right? I couldn't care less if I tried about most of this crap. If I could convert it to electronic and get rid of it tomorrow, I'd be gone. A lot of it I'm just like, I just need to get rid of this. Why do I have all this space taken up? All that data is so portable. Most of the books, even the ones that aren't available in electronic uh, format anymore, because they, they're so old that nobody made them available, everything that's in them is on the Internet. That whole industry is dead. Printing books is dead. CDs is dead. Cassette tapes? <laughs> yeah, there's a the collector's industry for old vinyl, and they're even putting some new stuff on vinyl, but it's not coming back. It's a fad. Fads don't last. The whole world is shifted. 
And it's going to now accelerate in that shift. And it's up to us to figure out what part we're going to play in it. And I got, I got news for you. Guys like me in our 40s and older, even those of us who kind of kept pace with it up till now, it's going to get harder and harder for us to stay up to the pace. Because we've gotten to the point where like we're happy with like Facebook, right? When your mom's on Facebook, Gary Vaynerchuk said when your mom's on Facebook, it's dead, right? And there's, there's some truth to that. It still has value in it, but like all these evolving platforms, all these evolving technologies, the people that stay abreast to them, oh, there's going to be EMP attack from Korea. And they, no, there's not. No, there's not. We have much bigger problems than that. We have an evolution of technology that's exceeding the intelligence level, the critical thinking, the capability, and the maturity of mankind. Our technology has exceeded our, ourselves. And it's up to us either to adapt and make the best of it or have really bad things come out of it. It's not all hunky-dory, but there is opportunity. So seek your opportunity. And as we move into the holiday period, you're going to have a lot of time for thinking. There's been never a time in history where thinking's been more important than there is right now. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence In restless dreams I walked alone Streets of cobblestone Neath the halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and damp When my eyes were stabbed By the flash of a neon light To split the night And touch the sound of silence And in the naked light I saw Ten thousand people, maybe more People talking without speaking People hearing without listening People writing songs That voices never share No one Who said I you do not know? Silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. But my words like silent raindrops fell. I'm a
and flashed out its warning In the words that it was forming And the sign said the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls The tenement halls Whispering the sounds of silence